I have clear memories of my children's early doctor's visits. If you're parents, you can probably relate. One very clear one in my mind is one where uh, my wife was sick, and I took all three kids to Jude, our youngest's, three-month vaccination visit. So here I had a three-month-old, and a four-year-old, and a six-year-old. And I was juggling them and learning to juggle three kids for the first time by myself. I remember this very clearly because he was getting vaccinations, one on each thigh. And as he was about to get it, the other two kids started crying before he started crying. And they were freaking out. They didn't want their little baby to be hurt by these shots, and they didn't want to see it. And so then... Uh, in the distress, one of the nurses took the other two outside and sat with them outside. But that didn't really seem to calm them down. They were crying and screaming as I was holding our little baby who was not sure what was going to happen next. And he got two shots, one on each leg. And then all three children were crying. It was very stressful. Now, you think of this scene, right? Here's a little baby, three months old. This little baby is susceptible to all kinds of sicknesses, viruses, bacteria. And in our love for this child, we allow this child to experience pain and suffering because we understand that there is something important that this child needs that he does not understand yet. And in fact, at his age, I can't explain to him what's going on or why he's experiencing pain. As you think about that scene, Zoom in for for a minute on on, on the baby, our little three-month-old. Here he is experiencing pain, and he doesn't understand what's happening. But what is his instinct when something happens that he doesn't understand? He did the only thing that was natural to him as a baby, a three-month-old baby. He looked around, and the only thing familiar to him was his father. And he leaned in close and clung to me tightly, And glared at these nurses. (laughs) And he just held on for dear life. Because the one thing that he knew for sure is this is my dad. And I can trust him. Do you know, in some ways, that is a little image, a little picture for us of what the Christian life is often like. The Christian life is like this. We will experience pain and suffering and difficulty in situations that we do not understand. And when things don't make sense... When things are confusing, what should that instinct be for us? You know, as Christians, we know what it should be. We know that it should be to lean into our Heavenly Father, to draw near to Him, and to know that we can trust Him. But is that often what we do in the midst of such difficulty? Is that our first instinct? You know, at times, even for us who are Christians, I think our first instinct can be to move away from God to hold him at arm's length, to assume that that we know better, and to push him away, and to actually put ourselves in a place of judging God, in a place of assuming that God must be wrong, because this must not be right. And with things that we do not understand, to assume that we know better. In our passage this morning, we are... Zooming in on John the Baptist, God's faithful servant, who was God's messenger to prepare the way for the Messiah. And in our scene this morning, John the Baptist, after a faithful and successful ministry, accomplishing all that God called him to, John is now sitting in a prison cell. He's at the end of his ministry, and he is incarcerated for being faithful. He's going to send messengers to Jesus, and it's clear that John doesn't understand what's going on. He doesn't understand why, if the Messiah is here, he is in prison. And in our scene this morning, as John experiences confusion and asks questions, we see Jesus shepherd him faithfully. Turn with me in your Bibles to the book of Luke, Luke chapter 7. We're in the midst of a in the midst of a series on the Gospel of Luke, John is laying out for us in the Gospel of Luke the life and ministry of Jesus. We've seen Jesus' miraculous birth. 
his establishment in ministry through the filling of the Spirit, we see that he is God himself in human flesh. He's begun his ministry. He's begun his teaching. He's begun demonstrating who he is. God become man. The Messiah, the one who's been given all authority. And last week, we saw him exercising great authority to show great compassion. And in our passage this morning, we see Jesus interacting with John the Baptist. We see John the Baptist's confusion about what it is that Jesus is doing. And we see Jesus' estimation of John and his ministry in the midst of the people's division. So if you're taking notes this morning, we'll be looking at Luke 7, verses 18 to 35. And our main point is this. Luke 7, 18 to 35. Our main point is this. God's faithful servants may be misunderstood by the world, but they are esteemed by God. God's faithful servants may be misunderstood by the world, but they are esteemed by God. Misunderstood by the world, esteemed by God. I pray this morning that we would be encouraged in our own Christian life as we consider uh, this passage at hand. Let's begin. We have three points. Point number one, John's confusion, verses 18 to 23. John's confusion. Point number two, Jesus' estimation, verses 24 to 28. Jesus' estimation. And then point number three, the people's division, verses 29 to 35, the people's division. Let's begin with point number one, John's confusion. And I'll begin by reading verses 18 to 23. This is God's word. The disciples of John reported all these things to him. And John, calling two of his disciples to him, sent them to the Lord, saying, Are you the one who is to come, or shall we look for another? And when the men had come to him, they said, John the Baptist has sent us to you, saying, Are you the one who is to come, or shall we look for another? In that hour he healed people of diseases and plagues and evil spirits, and on many who were blind he bestowed sight. And he answered them, Go and tell John what you have seen and heard. The blind receive their sight, the lame walk, lepers are cleansed, and the deaf hear, the dead are raised up, the poor have good news preached to them. And blessed is the one who is not offended by me. For context, quickly, John the Baptist's ministry is recorded in Luke chapter 3, the first half of Luke chapter 3. If you flip back to Luke chapter 3, you see his ministry there. He is fulfilling the prophecy made about this messenger who would prepare the way of the Lord. And John was faithful to do this. He did this by going into the wilderness and crying aloud. And the way that he prepared the way of the Lord was by preaching a gospel of repentance in preparation for the Messiah to come. He was preaching the good news that the Messiah was coming. The Messiah who would save and redeem his people. And then he was baptizing people as a preparation for this Messiah, showing their repentance and their preparation, desiring to be cleansed as they await the Messiah to come. John records in Luke chapter 3 as well what's going to happen to John, that he is arrested by Herod and thrown into prison. Then in John... In Luke chapter 4, the next chapter, turn with me here because this is important for context. Jesus stands up in the synagogue in Nazareth and declares himself to be the Messiah. Look at Luke chapter 4. And the scroll of the prophet Isaiah was given to him. He unrolled the scroll, verse 17 of chapter 4. And he found the place, this is Jesus in the synagogue, where it was written... Now listen to this prophecy. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because He has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. Does that sound familiar? It should because Jesus just quoted it in our passage. And to proclaim liberty to the captives. So you think of the scene here. Here is John the Baptist, God's faithful servant, a prophet of God sent to prepare the way for the Messiah. And after his faithful ministry, where is he? Well, he's captive. He's in prison. He's been imprisoned by Herod the king. And the Messiah has come, the one that he's prepared. And he is the one who 
has already said, I'm here to proclaim good news to the poor. He sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives. And where is Jesus' right-hand man, John the Baptist, right now? Well, he's captive. He's in prison. So it's clear from our passage now in Luke chapter 7 that this Messiah who's supposed to be declaring good news to the poor and liberty to the captives has allowed his first lieutenant, his assistant in ministry, to be made captive and put in prison. So what is John expecting? Well, if Jesus is the Messiah, if he's the one who's come to declare liberty to the captives, hello Jesus, I'm here, I'm captive, can you please declare liberty for me? Can you do something, Messiah, and free me from my imprisonment? You see what's happening here as John the Baptist sends his disciples is John is confused about Jesus and the nature of his ministry. He doesn't understand why if Jesus has come with all this authority and all of this power and he's come to rescue and to save and to redeem, to free those who are captive, that he's rotting in a prison cell captive. So he sends the disciples to Jesus to say, are you really this guy that I've been preparing the way for? And if so, it seems to be implied. A thinly veiled request. Can you remember your servant, John, and release me from prison? Quite a remarkable scene that Luke paints here. A scene of a faithful servant of God suffering A faithful servant of God who had been faithful to accomplish the ministry that God had given to him. And yet he is in prison. Imagine this scene. Imagine you were John. And what does Jesus do? Well, look at what he does. It's almost as if he doesn't answer. And rather than answering the question, he just starts doing things. You see what it says there? They ask the question, are, are you the Messiah? And if, if not, should we be looking for another? And then it just stops. And it says in verse 21, in that hour, Jesus was doing things. Almost as if Jesus was saying, let's just wait a moment and, and watch. And what does Jesus do? Well, he's fulfilling the things that, that Isaiah 61 passage prophesied that he would do. He does all of them except for one. He doesn't proclaim liberty to the captive John the Baptist. Look at what he does. Verse 21, he healed many people of diseases and plagues and evil spirits. And on many who were blind, he bestowed sight. And then what does Jesus say? Verse 22, go and tell John what you have seen and heard. The blind receive their sight. The lame walk. Lepers cleansed and the deaf hear, the dead are raised up, the poor have good news preached to them. See what Jesus is saying. I am this Messiah. I am the one who you led the way for. I am the one who fulfills Isaiah 61 and I have come with all authority and I am demonstrating my authority by doing many incredible things. But He's also saying I have not come riding on a white horse in order to overthrow the kingdoms of this world, yet. There will be a day when he would do that. Today is not that day. He has come to declare that he is the Messiah who would redeem his people, who would heal them of their most important sickness, who would open up their eyes, not only physically, but spiritually, by preaching the good news. He would relieve us of our greatest need. And yet he is not going to release John from prison. And so look at what he says in verse 23. Blessed is the one who is not offended by me. Blessed is the one who is not offended by me. You see what Jesus is doing here. He's declaring himself to be the Messiah. He's doing many incredible miracles showing that he is that Messiah. He's also establishing that he has come for a purpose that may not be understood in the eyes of the world, but according to God's estimation, it is right and good. He has come to preach good news. And he has come not to, with power and with a sword, to establish his kingdom now, 
but to establish his kingdom in another way, a unique and seemingly foolish way, by laying down his life as a sacrifice for sinners. He is going to actually conquer all of the powers of evil. He is going to conquer sin and death, not by coming in on a white horse with power and with military and with political and physical strength. He is going to conquer by lovingly and sacrificially laying down his life for the good of those in need, for sinners like you and like me. Jesus' ministry was misunderstood. It was misunderstood by the crowds. It was even misunderstood by John the Baptist, Jesus' prophet and the one to prepare the way for him. Even John misunderstood Jesus' first coming and misunderstood God's plans. Did you know we can do the same? We can misunderstand God's ways and God's purposes. We can misunderstand what it is that God is doing on a regular basis. Whether it's big picture, what is God doing in terms of salvation? Or very microscopic, what is he doing in my life? Or what is he doing this week? Or what is he doing in this situation? God is often misunderstood by us. I wonder what your reaction is uh, this morning as you experience things and you don't understand what God is up to. How do you respond? When you're confused by the things that God has ordained, the things that in his providential hand he is wielding in your life, how do you respond when you're confused? Do you go to him with that confusion? Let me encourage you, Christian, Run to God, even with your confusion. Be honest with him about what you're feeling and experiencing. I love that Jesus doesn't reprimand John for bringing this request to him. He answers by answering no. He answers. You know, God loves when his children are honest with him. Any of us who are parents will know that we love it when our, parents, when our children come to us and are honest with us. If they come with that right heart, we love knowing what's on our children's hearts and minds. This is why I love the book of Psalms. And those of us who've been Christians for years love the book of Psalms because we love the honesty of it. We love that the the psalmists, as they write out their prayers and songs to God, are incredibly honest with God. When they're going through difficulty and pain, they go to God with it. They don't run elsewhere. They don't gossip about God to other people. They go to God and they communicate with Him in prayer and in song. Sometimes with tears and with weeping. You know, God loves it when we come to us. When we come to Him. When we as His children run to Him. Like my little son who doesn't understand those shots. Who draw near to God even with our pain and our difficulty. Knowing that He must have some good in mind for it. Let me encourage you, Christian, to trust your Heavenly Father even when you're confused and don't understand. There's something, I think, in terms of application for us, too, about how it is that we respond when God doesn't answer our prayers the way that we expect. You see here that John is, in essence, making a request of Christ. He is, by this this sending of messengers, requesting deliverance from Christ. Do you know how Jesus answers that request? He answers it. It isn't an unanswered prayer. He doesn't answer yes. He answers no. You know, at times, Jesus and God himself answers our prayers with a loving no. Not because he doesn't love us, but because he does. And even in his no's, God has good intended for us. Imagine if God were to give us absolutely everything we ever asked for, regardless what it was. Would that be good for us? No, we would be spoiled brat children of God. We would be spoiled. We would misunderstand God and His purposes for us. You know, God even has a loving intent for us when He says no to our requests. You know that we can trust Him. Let me encourage you, Christian, to make requests of God according to His will, that He knows far more than you or I do about what is best for us. That He has often good in mind for us in asking us even to wait for good things that, re- that we request of Him. And that in the waiting, He has growing and maturing for us to do. 
Let me encourage you, Christian, to trust your Father with your prayers, even when you receive those no's. Do you know that Christ himself, as he went to the cross, made requests of his Father and received a no from him? Three times he begged of his Father, let this cup pass from me. And Christ received no, no, no from his heavenly Father. As he headed to the cross and considered the weight of bearing the wrath of God against sin and sinners, even Jesus made requests of his Father and received those no's as well for us. Because our Heavenly Father had good in mind, not only for Christ, but for us as well. That we would be able to experience with Christ receiving no's to his prayers, God's acceptance forever. This is the gospel message. The gospel message is that Jesus Christ has come in apparent foolishness to lay down his life and to look like a criminal. Christ was God himself in human flesh and he came because we were in prison. Because we were in the prison of our sin and death. And he came to redeem us, to buy us out of that slave market of sin and that prison cell. He bought us back by laying down his life and taking upon himself the sacrifice that your sins and my sins demanded. Christ did this laying down his life for us so that we didn't have to. And then he rose from the grave showing that he had power, that he had succeeded, that he was raised victorious, proving his power over sin and death and proving that his sacrifice was sufficient, that it had accomplished what he had intended for it. He did this for sinners like you and me. This is the the gospel message. That even as Christ received no's to his prayers, you and I can receive from God the declaration, justified. Sinners like you and me can be right in the presence of a, a holy God. Not because we're right or just, but because Christ is. And because as he laid down his life, the innocent one for the guilty, that he can offer to us his righteousness. Because we deserve it, though we don't. But because He does. And He did it for us. If we would but repent of our sin and trust in Christ. Let me encourage you, if you're here and you're not a Christian, you may be confused about this fallen world that we're living in. You may be confused about what God is up to. But do you know, by running to Him, even with your confusion, but even more with your sin, that God can answer that prayer and He can save you you were turned from your sin and trust in Christ. If you're here and you're not a Christian, you can do that even now. In your very seat, turn. Cling to Christ and receive from the Father the declaration justified right before me. My child. In John's confusion, he sent these messengers and then he heard the Final word, blessed is the one who is not offended by me. I wonder if there's ways that you are offended by God this morning. Are you ever offended by God? Does he ever offend you by the things that he does? I love this promise. Blessed is the one who is not offended by me. There are many things that God does that we will not understand, but our response is not to be offended by Him or to assume that we know better, but to come near to Him and to assume He has good reasons and to sit at His feet and listen to Him. You know, often uh, in our evangelism or even in our apologetics, we can have a wrong approach in the way that we approach God. In the way that we talk to others, we can assume that the people around us, that even we ourselves are the omniscient ones, the ones who know everything, the ones who are those perfect judges who can judge between what's good and what's bad. We can approach God wrongly, assuming that we can evaluate whether what it is that he's doing is right or wrong. You know, that's a completely wrong approach as we come near to God. It isn't our approach to to sit on a judgment seat and to make declarations about whether what God is doing is good or bad, is right or is unjust. No, we are never to approach God in this way, assuming that we know best and that he has to prove himself right to us. 
No, we must always go to him humbly, knowing that he knows so much more than we do and ready to listen to him. Let me encourage you to always in your approach to God, to approach him humbly, even with your honesty, to approach him humbly, knowing and assuming that he knows what's best. That's John. Oh, that's point number one, John's confusion. Point number two, Jesus' estimation. Point number two, Jesus' estimation. We'll pick up in verse 24. When John's messengers had gone, Jesus began to speak to the crowds concerning John. What did you go out into the wilderness to see? A reed shaken by the wind? What then did you go out to see? A man dressed in soft clothing? Behold, those who are dressed in splendid clothing and live in luxury are in king's courts. What then did you go out to see? A prophet? Yes, I tell you, and more than a prophet. This is he of whom it is written, Behold, I send my messenger before your face, who will prepare your way before you. I tell you, among those born of women, none is greater than John, yet the one who is least in the kingdom of God is greater than he. We have John's confusion about what God is doing, but now we have Jesus' estimation of John's ministry. I love the contrast here. John is confused about Jesus, but Jesus is not confused about John. And even as John is confused about Jesus and what he's doing, Jesus is clear about John and his faithfulness. And we see that in Jesus' estimation, John was not only faithful in his ministry, he's not only to be held up as one with Esteem, given esteem, because God esteems him as worthy of it. He says he's not only a prophet of God, but he is the greatest of the prophets. And not only is he the greatest of the prophets, he's more than a prophet. He's the fulfillment of these prophecies made hundreds of years beforehand of this forerunner who would come to prepare the way for Christ. And not only is he greater than a prophet, there has been no one greater born of woman, than John. He is the greatest of all men. I assume that means because of his particular calling as the one to prepare the way for the Messiah. But I assume as well it must also be because of his faithfulness to that calling from God. In Jesus and in God's estimation, John is great and is to be esteemed as faithful. But consider... John's ministry. Consider what it looked like. Consider for a minute that you're a pastor or a minister. I know it's probably hard for some of you, but let's just consider for a minute. If you were in ministry, plot your course, make your plans. What kind of ministry would you like to have? What would you want it to look like to be successful? Remember when I was in seminary, we had uh, several folks uh, enrolled in our seminary who were uh, Pentecostal and who had uh, bought into the prosperity gospel hook, line, and sinker. And several of these folks would, would love to debate with our professors because none of our believed in the prosperity gospel. And I remember one time getting into a debate with one about what ministry should look like. And he told me that he had trusted God for a Mercedes. And he was telling me the kind of ministry that he was going to have as a pastor. And he said, I've prayed and I've claimed, and I'm going to have a kind of successful ministry where I drive a Mercedes. And I was shocked that he said it, but even more that he believed it. So here... Here, me and my seminary friends, with our slowly growing knowledge of Scripture, were showing him passages of people in ministry who didn't drive Mercedes, like Paul in 2 Corinthians, who begins listing boastfully of all of his ministry credentials, about how many times he was whipped, about how many times he was beaten, about how he was thrown in prison, about how he experienced suffering and shipwreck. And you know what this young aspiring preacher said to me? Well, I don't want to have a ministry like Paul's. I want to have a ministry like Moses's. I want to have a successful ministry. You just think of how mind-blowing this thought process is. 
I want a particular kind of ministry from God that doesn't look like the faithful Apostle Paul's, but looks like Moses's. Now continue to imagine with me what ministry success might look like for you if you were a pastor or a minister. And now consider with me John's ministry. What did John's ministry look like? Well, his ministry from the beginning was characterized by asceticism, by self-denial. He wasn't allowed to drink wine. He clothed himself in a kind of self-denying wardrobe, camel hair. He had a self-denying diet. Honey. Locusts? They weren't even chocolate-covered. His entire ministry was a ministry of self-denial. He lived in the wilderness, and he preached out there. And people came out to him to hear him preach. Would you want to have a ministry like that? And it gets worse. He not only, as he preached, had a ministry of self-denial in terms of his lifestyle. As he preached, he was rejected by the religious leaders. They hated him. They refused to listen to his message. They refused to be baptized by him, as we'll see as we go along in our passage. They rejected him. They assumed he wasn't a prophet. They didn't want to compete with other religious leaders. And so the Pharisees and the religious leaders, they rejected John and his ministry. So he wasn't accepted, even as he was being faithful. But he didn't accommodate his message for the crowd. He was faithful to what God called him to preach. And that ended up with him preaching against Herod the king and his false marriage after a an unbiblical divorce, which landed him in prison. Now, was he thrown in prison for having done something wrong? No, he was thrown in prison for having done something right. He is suffering for having been faithful. Is that the kind of ministry that you would imagine for yourselves if you wanted a successful ministry? But what is Jesus' estimation of John? Does does Jesus say, John, you failed. Look at you. You ended up in prison. What does Jesus say of John? How does he esteem? What is the estimation of Jesus of John's ministry? John is great. His ministry ends up in a prison cell. He ends up a martyr being beheaded by the king. And Jesus says, here's a faithful servant. In this way, Christianity is all topsy-turvy when it comes to how the world views it. It doesn't look successful from the outside. It looks like a failure. Imagine a a religion where the first two leaders, the, the one who prepares for the Messiah and the Messiah himself, are both martyred. Imagine how this is viewed through the eyes of the world, the the Greco Roman world, a world that prized power and wisdom. It looks foolish. Who would follow leaders that are killed? Who would follow leaders when the leaders seem to have failed with their responsibility? Yes, this is Christianity, and this is the way that God in His infinite wisdom has entered into the world through the incarnation of Christ, and through the message of life, through death, of salvation, through suffering. It's paradoxical, but it is the truth. It looks foolish in the eyes of the world, but it is wise. And Jesus shows us in our section here how He esteems John's ministry. It looks like a failure, but it is, in fact, a success. Let me speak with our elders just for a moment. The three of you. I'm going to preach to myself here. The four of us. You know, ministry may not look like what you expect. And faithfulness in ministry may not get the results that you hoped for. But that isn't the measure of what faithfulness is. The measure of faithfulness is not the results in the eyes of the world, but the estimation in the eyes of God. You know, you can be faithful to God and faithful to His truth, faithful to your calling of preaching the gospel and attempting to shepherd souls, and have in the eyes of the world the whole thing fall apart, and yet in the eyes of God be esteemed as a faithful servant. Let me encourage you, brothers, to not put your hopes in apparent worldly success. Don't put your hopes in numbers in terms of how many people are at this church or how many people you are discipling or see grow, but in being faithful to the calling God has given you. 
Let me for a moment speak to us as, as a congregation. Let me encourage you, members of First Baptist, to seek to encourage your pastors and your leaders, even your deacons in their ministry. Let me encourage you to be the people who come around your, your leaders knowing that there's a particular kind of difficulty and suffering and pain, a quiet one that elders and those in ministry may go through, as we have, even like John, hopes dashed or expectations fall through. Let me encourage you to be an encouragement to your pastors. Even if the sermon isn't great, thank him for his faithfulness in preparing the word for you. Even if this church doesn't burst its seams and become a thousand-member church in the next ten years. Let me encourage you to encourage your pastors for being faithful, not for apparent worldly success or fruitfulness. Let me encourage you as well, uh, brothers and sisters in Christ, to not evaluate things by worldly metrics. Worldly metrics will not work when it comes to evaluating uh, God's kingdom and true gospel ministry. My father used to say on a regular basis, I would ask him, how did Sunday go, or how was the sermon on Sunday? He would say, I'll tell you in eternity when the score's in. And he he, he keeps saying that. It's gotten almost annoying. (laughs) But there's something there that's important. What he's saying is, you know, I actually don't know. And in some ways, I'll never know. I'm I'm actually never going to know for sure how my ministry was until that final day when I stand before Christ and give an account. I know that there's an evaluation coming, and the, and the person evaluating me isn't going to view it the way that I do. And like John the Baptist here, with what looks like, from the eyes of the world, as failure in ministry is success. He's the greatest of all men. If that's the way we are evaluated, then I can't evaluate it based on how many people encouraged me after a sermon, or how many people showed up in the pews. There's no that can evaluate a faithful ministry. Only God knows that. Let me encourage you to to keep those things in God's hands and trust Him with it. There's an application here for us as well. To be faithful where we are. Because the most important thing isn't uh, apparent success. It's being faithful with what God has called you to do. I I love the promise at the end of verse 28. John's the greatest of all women born. But history isn't done yet. And so Jesus says, the one who is least in the kingdom of God is greater than he. In other words, there's going to be those in the future, perhaps, who are greater than John. Not because they have a greater ministry or more apparent success, but because they're least in the kingdom. And what does it mean to be least in the kingdom? It means to be the greatest servant, the one who serves the most and the most faithfully. This is a a wonderful encouragement for us. Not that we're... scrambling for success and wanting to be first. But we should want to be faithful too and to be found faithful in the end. Let me encourage you, brothers and sisters, to to focus on faithfulness. To focus on serving. Just as John the Baptist served by faithfully proclaiming a message that was rejected, that was misunderstood, that was dismissed, we can be faithful as well with what it is that God has called us to do, faithful and serving. Let me encourage you deacons. You have a unique opportunity of doing this, of serving the the church through the kinds of tasks that are often never seen. I love the faithful deacons among us who do so much stuff behind the scenes that no one ever knows or sees. They might only know it if something falls apart. It's always the sound people, isn't it? Let me encourage you deacons to be faithful and serving. Be faithful even when you don't feel recognized or that your labors aren't uh, encouraged publicly. Hold Hold on to this sermon as the one time it was. But let me encourage you, deacons, to serve faithfully because it is the the least in the kingdom of God who is greater than all. Serving faithfully behind the scenes, seeking to love others and to care for them, seeking to meet others' needs kindly and with love. These are the people that, that God esteems. Not those who demand the platform or demand to be noticed, but those who are willing to faithfully serve, even when, through the eyes of the world, it looks like very little or even a failure. That's point number two, Jesus' estimation. Point number three, the people's division. Point number three, the people's division. 
I'm going to pick up in verse 28, and we'll read through the end, through 35. I tell you, among those born of women, none is greater than John. Yet the one who is least in the kingdom of God is greater than he. When all the people heard this, and the tax collectors too, they declared God just, having been baptized with the baptism of John. But the Pharisees and the lawyers rejected the purpose of God for themselves, not having been baptized by him. Jesus then speaks again, verse 31. To what then shall I compare the people of this generation? And what are they like? They are like children sitting in the marketplace and calling to one another. We played the flute for you, and you did not dance. We sang a dirge, and you did not weep. For John the Baptist has come eating no bread and drinking no wine, and you say, he has a demon. The Son of Man has come eating and drinking, and you say, look at him, a a glutton and a drunkard, a friend of tax collectors and sinners. Yet wisdom is justified. By all her children. Point number three, the people's division. We see here that the people are divided about John and about Jesus as well. We see that the division going on here. There are those that have regarded John as a prophet and they're excited to hear Jesus recommend him. They went out to hear John preach and they were baptized by him and they're encouraged that their prophet is proven to be a true prophet of God. And yet the religious leaders are dismissive. They had refused to trust the message of John and to be baptized by him in humility and in preparation for the Messiah. And they've also already begun rejecting Jesus, God's second messenger, the greater messenger, the Messiah himself. And Jesus then gives a really poignant uh, illustration for us in verses 31. And following. I love the illustration. He uses the illustration for the, the, the generation, the people of his generation. He says they're like children in the marketplace. Children playing together. I love watching children play. They play and imitate the things that they see. Children love to play house. They love to imitate their parents. They love to imitate the people around them and the things that they see and watch. These children in the marketplace are imitating the the great events that happen throughout their their days. What are the great events? Well, the events of a wedding or the events of a funeral. And they're two very different events. But they're big events that happen. And the children notice, and so they imitate it, and they play together. And these children are pretending to have a wedding. They're pretending to play flutes. And they're angry at the other kids who refuse to dance and to play wedding with them. Or they turn and they play a a funeral dirge, a slow, sad song, and they're angry at the children who won't play with them, who won't play funeral with them. And he says that the people of this generation are like children, these fickle children, who are at the one time pretending to celebrate and another time pretending to weep. And how does this illustration work? Well, he says, John the Baptist comes. He comes with a a ministry of self-denial. Eating no bread, drinking no wine. And what is the evaluation of the religious leaders and the religious elite? He has a demon. Christ comes as the bridegroom come to bring the feast of God's salvation. And he's come eating and drinking and offering salvation even to tax collectors and sinners. And he's dismissed as well for a different reason. They say, oh, he's a glutton and a drunkard. He eats too much. He drinks too much. You can't trust this guy. And Jesus says, you refuse all of God's messengers. You always find some reason to dismiss them. Even though they're they're different, they're all coming with the same message of salvation from God, and you find reasons to dismiss them. Because at the end of the day, they aren't what you want them to be. You know, we can do this as well. We can receive truth from God and dismiss it. We can receive servants from God as pastors or as leaders and dismiss them if they aren't what we want them to be. If they don't do the things or say the things that we want them to to do or say. You know, we can be fickle or divided like these people were divided over God himself and over Christ. 
All of us can want a, a Savior, a Jesus in our own image. We can want some version of Jesus that we want for ourselves, or maybe that looks a bit like us. What, what we really want isn't God or the Jesus who is, but some version of him that, that meets with our expectations. These people were divided over God's messengers, but both of them were faithful messengers. They looked different, but they were both faithful. Do you know God's servants are not cookie cutter? You know, each of God's servants are, are going to look a little different. They're going to have different personalities. They're going to have different callings. They're going to be led by God to do some different things because they may be in different places or have different situations. You know, we shouldn't expect all Christians to look cookie cutter, to look exactly the same. We shouldn't dismiss someone because they do things a little different than than we do or assume that we have everything right and anyone who does do exactly what we do has everything wrong. No, we should have the kind of hearts as Christians where we have unity with those who love Christ, even when we do look a little different. That is what allows us to have unity in diversity. The fact that we are a bit different, or that we might have even some slightly different decisions on things, or make some different decisions or life choices. God hasn't made us cookie cutter. And just as two of his most faithful servants, Christ himself... And the second after him, John the Baptist, looked very different in their lives and ministries and callings. Us, even in the same church, living in the same city or metropolitan area, none of us are going to look exactly the same either. Though all of us, with each passing day, should be growing to be conformed more and more after the image of Christ and be looking more like Christ each day, not looking more like each other. In other words, we should have a unity together, even with our differences, but not attempting a kind of uniformity where we all look exactly the same. If you're here and you're not a Christian, uh, the Apostle Paul, uh, in his letters, talks about people desiring to hear messages that they like. He says that they're like people with itching ears who want to have their ears scratched with things that they like to hear. He said that that all of us, at some point in our sin, are going to be drawn towards a message and even messengers that say the things we want them to say and talking about the things that we don't want to hear. You know, all of us, deep down, with our sin, can be attracted to messages that are a little off-center, that actually move us off-track. That all of us in our sin may be drawn to, to messages and to messengers Preachers and teachers who say the things that we like to hear. If you are hearing this message and seeing God's word here, do you know God's word is true whether we think it is or not? Christ is good. He is the Savior whether we think he is or not. John the Baptist was a faithful minister whether we recognize him to be or not. And let me encourage you not to pursue teachers and churches and preachers who say the things that you like to hear cling to the ones who hold out God's truth and speak what is true even when it isn't what you want to hear. Let me encourage you Christians as well to draw near to God in his word. Be diligent in reading the word and clinging to the truth and spend particular time on the passages that are hard for you to hear. Because if there's a passage or if there's truth that's hard for you to hear, there's something there inside of you that you need to work against. There's something inside of you that needs to change. The problem isn't with God and His Word, but with you. And what you need to do is to draw near to God and to realize that wisdom is wisdom. God's wisdom is true wisdom, even when it may look like foolishness to us. Turn really quickly as we close to 1 Corinthians chapter 1. Paul says something very similar to this. Jesus says wisdom is justified by all her children. That is, wisdom's children are going to declare true wisdom, God's wisdom, to be right and just. Paul says something very similar in 1 Corinthians. He's talking about how the gospel is going to be dismissed, misunderstood, thought to be foolish. Look at 1 Corinthians 1 and verse 18. 
The word of the cross is foolishness to those who are dying, who are perishing. But to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise, and the discernment of the discerning I will thwart. Where is the one who is wise? Where is the scribe? Where is the debater of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? Now listen to this. For since in the wisdom of God, the world did not know God. Through wisdom, it pleased God through the foolishness of what we preach to save those who believe. For Jews demand signs and Greeks seek wisdom. But we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to Jews and foolishness to Gentiles. But to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God. For the foolishness of God is wiser than men. And the weakness of God is stronger than men. You see, the gospel message is going to be misunderstood by the world. It's going to be dismissed as foolish. But this message and this Christ is esteemed by God as the power of God for salvation. As you consider your own faith, as you consider your own walk with God, as you consider your own life, let me encourage you, brothers and sisters, to be evaluating things not by the eyes of this world, not by the spectacles of this world, but viewing things through the eyes of heaven, evaluating things through the eyes of God, and clinging to those things that are esteemed by God, even if they are dismissed and misunderstood by the world. We began our sermon this morning by considering my child getting shots, not understanding what was happening. As we think about this very practically, it may be that some of you today are in a situation in which you don't understand what God is doing. You're not sure what's happening or why God is bringing you through the particular kind of suffering and trial that you're going through. Uh, The pastor Charles Spurgeon, 19th century pastor in London, said this, when you cannot trace God's hand, trust his heart. In other words, when you cannot trace or track what it is that God is doing, if you can't connect the dots to understand why God is doing what He's doing, if you can't trace His hand, trust His heart. Be like that child that draws near to his father, knowing he must have good in mind, and trust Him. Let me encourage you to not evaluate God, but to trust Him, to draw near to Him, to follow Him. Even if He allows you to suffer unjustly, or go through all kinds of suffering and pain in this life, trust that He has good in store for you and good in mind for you. And desire not the esteem of men, but at the end of the day, the end of all days, the esteem of God. Desire nothing more than that evaluation that Jesus gave to John. Well done, good and faithful servant. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. God, we declare you are wise. We declare that you are good. We declare that you are just in all that you do. And we put our hopes not in ourselves or in the wisdom of this world, but in you and in Christ and in him crucified. We pray that we would be a people that are wise and a people that trust you, even when it seems that everything is going wrong in this world, that we would trust you. And in this way, demonstrate to a watching world what true wisdom looks like. We pray that you would do this for your glory in Christ's name. Amen.